Artistic Whispers Productions presents Soulless The Parasol Protectorate Book the First A comedy of manners involving vampires, dirigibles, and tea drinking by Gail Carragher Chapter 1 In which parasols prove useful Miss Alexia Tarabotti was not enjoying her evening. Private balls were never more than middling amusements for spinsters, and Miss Tarabotti was not the kind of spinster who could garner even that much pleasure from the event. To put the pudding in the puff, she had retreated to the library, her favourite sanctuary in any house, only to happen upon an unexpected vampire. She glared at the vampire. For his part, The vampire seemed to feel that their encounter had improved his ball experience immeasurably, for there she sat, without escort, in a low-necked ball gown. In this particular case, what he did not know could hurt him, for Miss Alexia had been born without a soul, which, any decent vampire of good blooding knew, made her a lady to avoid most assiduously. Yet he moved towards her darkly shimmering out of the library shadows with feeding fangs ready. (sighs) However, the moment he touched Miss Tarabotti, he was suddenly no longer darkly doing anything at all. He was simply standing there, foolishly fishing about with tongue for fangs unaccountably mislaid. Miss Tarabotti was not in the least surprised. Soullessness always neutralized supernatural abilities. She issued the vampire a very dour look. Certainly, most daylight folk would not peg her as anything less than a standard English prig. But had this man not even bothered to read the vampire's official abnormality roster for London and its greater environs? The vampire recovered his equanimity. He reared away from Alexia, knocking over a nearby tea trolley. Physical contact broken, the vampire's fangs reappeared. Clearly not the sharpest of prongs, he then darted forward from the neck like a serpent, diving in for another chomp. I say, we have not even been introduced. Miss Tarabotti had never actually had a vampire try to bite her before. She knew one or two by reputation, of course, and was friendly with Lord Akodama. But then who wasn't friendly with Lord Akodama? But no vampire had ever actually attempted to feed on her before. So Alexia, who abhorred violence, was forced to grab the miscreant by his nostrils, a delicate and therefore painful area, and shove him away. He stumbled over the fallen tea trolley, lost his balance in a manner astonishingly graceless for a vampire, and fell to the floor. He landed right on top of a plate of treacle tart. She picked up her parasol, It was terribly de rigueur for her to be carrying a parasol at an evening ball, but Miss Tarabotti rarely went anywhere without it. It was of a style entirely of her own devising, a black, frilly confection with purple satin pansies sewn about, brass hardware and buckshot in its silver tip. She whacked the vampire right on top of the head with it as he tried to extract himself from his newly intimate relations with the tea trolley. The buckshot, 
gave the brass parasol just enough heft to make a deliciously satisfying thump. Manners. The vampire sat back down on the treacle tart. Alexia followed up her advantage with a vicious prod between his legs. His howl went quite a bit higher in pitch, and he crumpled into a fetal position. While Miss Tarabotti was a proper English young lady, aside from not having a soul and being half Italian, she did spend quite a bit more time than most other young ladies did riding and walking, and was, therefore, unexpectedly strong. <laughs> Miss Tarabotti leapt forward, as much as one could be said to leap in full triple-layered underskirts, draped bustle, and ruffled taffeta top skirt, and bent over the vampire. He clutched at his indelicate bits and writhed about. The pain would not last long, given his supernatural healing ability, but it hurt most decidedly in the interim. Alexia pulled a long wooden hair stick out of her elaborate coiffure. Blushing at her own temerity, she ripped open the vampire's shirt front, which was cheap and overly starched, and poked at his chest right over the heart. Miss Terabody sported a particularly large and sharp hair stick. With her free hand, she made certain to touch his chest. Only physical contact would nullify his supernatural abilities. Desist that horrible noise immediately. The vampire lay perfectly still. His beautiful blue eyes watered slightly as he stared fixedly at the wooden hair stick. Or, as Alexia liked to call it, hair steak. Explain yourself! A thousand apologies. Who are you? Tentatively, the vampire reached for his fangs. Gone. To make her position perfectly clear, Alexia stopped touching him, though she kept her sharp hair stick in place. His fangs grew back. <gasps> what are you? I thought you were a lady, alone. It would be my right to feed if you were left so carelessly unattended. Please, I did not mean to presume. There was real panic in his eyes. Alexia found it hard not to laugh at his lisp. There is no cause for you to be so overly dramatic. Your hive queen will have told you of my kind. She returned her hand to his chest once more. The vampire's fangs retracted. The vampire looked at her as though she had suddenly sprouted whiskers and hissed at him. Miss Tarabotti was surprised. Supernatural creatures, be they vampires, werewolves or ghosts, owed their existence to an overabundance of soul, an excess that refused to die. They also generally knew that others existed, like Miss Tarabotti, who were born without any soul at all. The esteemable Bureau of Unnatural Registry, Burr, a division of Her Majesty's Civil Service, called her ilk preternatural. Alexia thought the term nicely dignified. What vampires called her was far less complimentary. After all, preternaturals had once hunted them, and vampires had long memories. Natural daylight persons were kept in the dark, so to speak, but any vampire worth his blood should know a preternatural's touch. This one's ignorance was untenable. I am a preternatural. Uh, um, uh, of course you are. Again, my apologies, lovely one. I am overwhelmed to meet you. You are my uh, first uh, preternatural. Ha! Not supernatural, not natural, of course. How foolish of me not to see the dichotomy. His eyes narrowed into craftiness. 
He was now studiously ignoring the hair stick and looking tenderly up into Alexia's face. Miss Tarabotti knew full well her own feminine appeal. The kindest compliment her face could ever hope to garner was exotic, never lovely. Vampires, Alexia figured, like all predators, were at their most charming when cornered. The vampire's hands shot forward, going for her neck. Apparently, he had decided if he could not suck her blood, strangulation was an acceptable alternative. Alexia jerked back, at the same time pressing her hair stick into the creature's white flesh. It slid in about half an inch. The vampire reacted with a desperate wriggle that, even without superhuman strength, unbalanced Alexia. She fell back. He stood roaring in pain, with her hair stick half in and half out of his chest. Miss Tarabotti scrabbled for her parasol, rolling about inelegantly amongst the tea things, hoping her new dress would miss the fallen foodstuffs. She found the parasol and came upright, swinging it in a wide arc. Purely by chance, the heavy tip struck the end of her wooden <coughs> hair stick, driving it straight into the vampire's heart. The creature stood stock still, a look of intense surprise on his handsome face. He fell backwards onto the much-abused plate of treacle tart, flopping in a limp, overcooked asparagus kind of way. His alabaster face turned a yellowish-gray, also like overcooked asparagus, as though he were afflicted with the jaundice, and he went still. Alexia's books called this end of the vampire life cycle disanimation. Alexia, who thought the action astoundingly similar to a souffle going flat, decided at that moment to call it the Grand Collapse. At that point, she intended to waltz directly out of the library without anyone the wiser to her presence there. This would have resulted in the loss of her best hair stick and her well-deserved tea, but also of a good deal of drama. Unfortunately, a small group of young dandies came traipsing in at that precise moment. What young men of such dress were doing in the library was anyone's guess. Alexia felt the most likely explanation was that they had become lost while looking for the card room. Regardless, their presence forced her to pretend that she too had just discovered the dead vampire. With a resigned shrug, she screamed and collapsed into a faint. Ah! She stayed resolutely fainted, despite the liberal application of smelling salts, which made her eyes water most tremendously, a cramp in the back of one knee, and the fact that her new ball gown was getting most awfully wrinkled. The expected noises ensued, a good deal of yelling, much bustling about, and several loud clatters as one of the housemaids cleared away the fallen tea. Then came the sound Alexia had half anticipated, half dreaded. An authoritative voice cleared the library of both young dandies and all other interested parties that had flowed into the room upon discovery of the tableau. Get out! The lot of you! Yes, go on, shove off while I gain the particulars from the young lady. Mark my words. I will use something much, much stronger than smelling salts, Miss Terabotti. The voice in her ear would have caused Alexia to shiver and think primal monkey thoughts about moons and running far and fast. 
if she'd had a soul. Instead, it caused her to sigh in exasperation and sit up. And a good evening to you too, Lord Macan. Lovely weather we are having for this time of year, is it not? Alexia patted at her hair, which was threatening to fall down without the hair stick in its proper place. Surreptitiously, she looked about for Lord Connell Macan's second in command, Professor Lyle. Lord Macan tended to maintain a much calmer temper when his beta was present. But then, as Alexia had come to comprehend, that appeared to be the main role of a beta, especially one attached to Lord Macon. Ah, Professor Lyle, how nice to see you again. Professor Lyle, the beta in question and in attendance, was a slight, sandy-haired gentleman of indeterminate age and pleasant disposition, as agreeable, in fact, as his alpha was sour. He grinned at Alexia and doffed his hat, which was of first-class design and sensible material. His cravat was similarly subtle for... While it was tied expertly, the knot was a humble one. Miss Terabati, how delicious to find ourselves in your company once more. Oh, do stop humouring her, Randolph. The fourth Earl of Wolsey was much larger than Professor Lyle, and in possession of a near-permanent frown. Or at least, he always seemed to be frowning when he was in the presence of Miss Alexia Terabati, ever since the hedgehog incident, which really, honestly, had not been her fault. He also had unreasonably pretty tawny eyes, mahogany-coloured hair, and a particularly nice nose. The eyes were currently glaring at Alexia from a shockingly intimate distance. Why is it, Miss Terabati, every time I have to clean up a mess in a library, you just happen to be in the middle of it? Alexia gave him a withering look and brushed down the front of her green taffeta gown, checking for bloodstains. Lord Macon watched her do it appreciatively. Miss Tarabotti might examine her face in the mirror each morning with a large degree of censure, but there was nothing at all wrong with her figure. He would have to have had far less soul and a good fewer urges not to notice that appetizing fact. Of course, she always went and spoiled the appeal by opening her mouth. In his humble experience, the world had yet to produce a more vexingly verbose female. Alexia reminded herself that Lord Macon and his kind were only just civilised. One simply could not expect too much from them, especially under delicate circumstances such as these. Of course, that failed to explain Professor Lyle, who was always utterly urbane. She glanced with appreciation in the Professor's direction. Lord Macon's frown intensified. Miss Terabotti considered that the lack of civilised behaviour might be the sole provenance of Lord Macon. He had, rumour had it, only lived in London a comparatively short while, and he had relocated from Scotland of all barbaric places. <coughs> the professor coughed delicately to get his alpha's attention. The earl's yellow gaze focused on him with such intensity it should have actually burned. Aye? Professor Lyle was crouched over the vampire, examining the hair stick with interest. He was poking about the wound, a spotless white lawn handkerchief wrapped around his hand. Very little mess, actually. Almost a complete lack of blood spatter. He must have been very hungry. What happened here? The beta took out a small set of wooden tweezers from the pocket of his waistcoat and picked at the back of the vampire's trousers. He paused, rummaged about in his coat pockets and produced a diminutive leather case. 
he clicked it open and removed a most bizarre pair of goggle-like things. They were gold in colour, with multiple lenses on one side, between which there appeared to be some kind of liquid. The contraption was also riddled with small knobs and dials. Professor Lyle propped the ridiculous things onto his nose and bent back over the vampire, twiddling at the dials expertly. Goodness gracious me, what are you wearing, Professor? It looks like the unfortunate progeny of an illicit union between a pair of binoculars and some opera glasses. What on earth are they called? Binocticles? Spectaculars? <laughs> How about glassicles? There was a twinkle in Lord Macon's eye as he said that. A twinkle Alexia found rather unsettling. Professor Lyle looked up from his examination and glared at the both of them. His right eye was hideously magnified out of all proportion. It was quite gruesome and made Alexia start involuntarily. Oh, these, these are my monocular cross-magnification lenses with spectrum modifier attachment, and they are invaluable. I will thank you both not to mock them so openly. Oh. He turned once more to the task at hand. How do they work? Professor Lyle looked back up at her, suddenly animated. Well, you see, it's really quite interesting. By turning this little knob here, you can change the distance between the two panes of glass here, allowing the liquid yeah. to... Don't encourage him, Mr. Abati. We'll be here all night. Looking slightly crestfallen, Professor Lyle turned back to the dead vampire. Now what is this substance all over his clothing? His alpha, preferring the direct approach, looked accusingly at Alexia. What on God's green earth is that muck? Oh, sadly. Trickletart. A tragic loss, I dare say. Miss Terabati's stomach chose that moment to growl in agreement. She would have coloured gracefully with embarrassment had she not possessed the complexion of one of those heathen Italians, as her mother said, which never coloured gracefully or otherwise. Convincing her mother that Christianity had, to all intents and purposes, originated with the Italians, thus making them the exact opposite of heathen, was a waste of time and breath. Alexia refused to apologise for the boisterousness of her stomach and favoured Lord Macon with a defiant glare. Her stomach was the reason she had snuck away in the first place. Her mamma had assured her that there would be food at the ball, yet all that appeared on offer when they arrived was a bowl of punch and some sadly wilted watercress. Never one to let her stomach get the better of her, Alexia had ordered tea from the butler and retreated to the library. Since she normally spent any ball lurking on the outskirts of the dance floor, trying to look as though she did not want to be asked to waltz, tea was a welcome alternative. It was rude to order refreshments from someone else's staff, but when one was promised sandwiches and there was nothing but watercress, one must simply take matters into one's own hands. Professor Lyle, kind-hearted soul that he was, pretended not to notice the rumbling of her stomach, Though, of course, he heard it. He had excellent hearing. They all did. Starvation would explain why the vampire was desperate enough to try for Miss Terribotti at a ball rather than take him to the slums like the smart ones do when they get this bad. No associated hive, either. How could you possibly know that? There's no need to be so direct with the young lady. A hive queen would never let one of her brood get into such a famished condition. We must have a rove on our hands, one completely without ties to the local hive. Alexia stood up, revealing to Lord Macon the fact that she had arranged her fate to rest comfortably against a fallen settee pillow. He grinned, and then quickly hid it behind a frown, 
when she looked at him suspiciously. I have a different reason. She gestured to the vampire's clothing. Badly tied cravat and a cheap shirt? No hive worth its salt would let a lava like that out without dressing him properly for a public appearance. I am surprised he was not stopped at the front entrance. The Duchess's footman really ought to have spotted a cravat like that prior to the reception line and forcibly ejected the wearer. I suppose good stuff is hard to come by with all the best ones becoming drones these days. But such a shirt! Cheap clothing is no excuse for killing a man. Hmm, that's what you say. Alexia evaluated Lord Macon's perfectly tailored shirt front and exquisitely tied cravat. His dark hair was a bit too shaggy to be demode, and his face was not entirely clean-shaven. But he possessed enough hauteur to carry this lower-class roughness off without seeming scruffy. She was certain that his silver and black paisley cravat must be tied under sufferance. He probably preferred to wander about bare-chested at home. The idea made her shiver oddly. It must take a lot of effort to keep a man like him tidy. This thought also made her shiver. Stop trying to change the subject, Miss Terabati. Tell me what happened here. Lord Macon put on his burr face and pulled out a small metal tube, stylus, and pot of clear liquid. He unrolled the tube with the cranking device, clicked the top off the liquid and dipped the stylus into it. It sizzled ominously. Do not give me instructions in that tone of voice, you... Puppy, I am jolly well not one of your pack. Lord Connell Macon, Earl of Wolsey, was alpha of the local werewolves, and as a result he had access to a wide array of truly vicious methods of dealing with Miss Alexia Tarabotti. Instead of bridling at her insult, puppy indeed, he brought out his best offensive weapon, the result of decades of personal experience with more than one alpha she-wolf. Scott he may be by birth, but that only made him better equipped to deal with strong-willed females. Stop playing verbal games with me, madam, or I shall go out into the ballroom, find your mother, and bring her here. Well, I like that. That is hardly playing a fair game. How unnecessarily callous! Alexia's mamma did not know that Alexia was preternatural. Mrs. Loontwill, as she was Loontwill since her remarriage, leaned a little too far towards the frivolous in any given equation. She was prone to wearing yellow and engaging in bouts of hysteria. Combining her mother with a dead vampire and her daughter's true identity was a recipe for disaster on all possible levels. Lord Macon moved purposefully towards the door with the clear intention of acquiring said Mrs. Luntwill. Alexia caved with ill grace. Oh, very well. She settled herself with a rustle of green skirts onto a peach brocade Chesterfield near the window. The Earl was both amused and annoyed to see that she had managed to pick up her fainting pillow and place it back on the couch without his registering any swooping movement. I came into the library for tea. I was promised food at this ball. In case you had not noticed, no food appears to be in residence. Lord Macon, who, being huge, required a considerable amount of fuel, mostly of the raw protein inclination, had noticed. The Duke of Snodgrove was notoriously reticent about any additional expenditure at his wife's ball. Vittles were probably not on the list of acceptable offerings. The man owns half of Berkshire and cannot even provide a decent sandwich. Miss Tarabotti made an empathetic movement with both hands. My point precisely. 
so you will understand that I had to resort to ordering my own repast. Did you expect me to starve? <sighs> the Earl gave her generous curves a rude once-over. Observed that Miss Terrabody was nicely padded in exactly the right places, and refused to be suckered into becoming sympathetic. He maintained his frown. I suspect that it's precisely what the vampire was thinking when he found you without a chaperone. An unmarried female, alone in a room in this enlightened day and age? Why, if the moon had been full, even I would have attacked you. Alexia gave him the once-over and reached for her parasol. My dear sir, I should like to see you try. Being Alpha made Lord Macon a tad unprepared for such bold rebuttals, even with his Scottish past. He blinked at her in surprise for a split second and then resumed the verbal attack. You do realize modern social mores exist for a reason. I was hungry. Allowances should be made. Professor Lyle, all unobserved by the other two, was busy fishing about in his waistcoat. Eventually, he produced a mildly beaten up ham and pickle sandwich wrapped in a bit of brown paper. He presented it to Miss Terabotti, ever the gallant. Under normal circumstances, Alexia would have been put off by the disreputable state of the sandwich, but it was meant so kindly, and offered with such diffidence, she could do nothing but accept. Why, this is delicious. I keep them around for when his lordship gets particularly testy. Such offerings keep the beast under control, for the most part, excepting the full moon, of course. Would that a nice ham and pickle sandwich was all it took then. What do you do at the full moon? Lord Macon knew very well Miss Tarabotti was getting off the point intentionally. Driven beyond endurance, he resorted to use of her first name. Alexia? She waved the sandwich at him. Uh, do you want half of this, my lord? Lord Macon's frown became even darker, if such a thing could be conceived. Professor Lyle pushed his glassicles up onto the brim of his top hat, where they looked like a strange second set of mechanical eyes, and stepped into the breach. Miss Terabati, I do not believe you quite realize the delicacy of this situation. Unless we can establish strong grounds for self-defense, by proving the vampire was behaving in a wholly irrational manner, you could be facing murder charges. Alexia swallowed her bite of sandwich so quickly, she partly choked and started to cough. <coughs> what? Lord Macon turned his fierce frown on his second. Now who is being too direct for the lady's sensibilities? Alexia placed the sandwich aside, having lost her appetite. I was simply sitting. He launched himself at me totally unprovoked. His feeding fangs were out. I am certain if I had been a normal daylight woman, he would have bled me dry. I simply had to defend myself. Professor Lyle nodded. A vampire in a state of extreme hunger had two socially acceptable options. To take sips from various willing drones belonging to him or his hive, or to pay for the privilege from blood whores down dockside. This was the 19th century after all, and one simply did not attack unannounced, unintroduced, and uninvited. Do you think maybe he was forced into this state? Do you mean imprisoned and starving until he was no longer in possession of his faculties? Professor Lyle flipped his glassicles back down off his hat and examined the dead man's wrists and neck myopically. No signs of confinement or torture, but it's hard to tell with a vampire. Even in a low-blood state, he would heal most superficial wounds in... He grabbed Lord Macon's metal roll and stylus, dipped the tip into the clear, sizzling liquid, and did some quick calculations. 
A little over one hour. And then what? Did he escape, or was he intentionally set free? He seemed perfectly sane to me, aside from the attacking part, of course. He was able to carry on a decent conversation. He even tried to charm me. Must have been quite a young vampire, and... He had a terrible case of fanglisp. Professor Lyle looked shocked and blinked at her through the asymmetrical lenses. Among vampires, lisping was the height of vulgarity. It was as though he had never been trained in hive etiquette. No social class at all. He was almost a bore. Lyle took the glassicles off and put them away in their little case, with an air of finality. He looked gravely at his alpha. You know what this means, then, my lord? Lord Macon was not frowning any more. Instead, he was looking grim. Alexia felt it suited him better, setting his mouth into a straight line and touching his tawny eyes with a determined glint. She wondered idly what he would look like if he smiled a real honest smile. Then she told herself quite firmly that it was probably best not to find out. It means some hive queen is intentionally abiding to metamorphosis outside of her regulations. Could it be just the once, do you think? Or this could be the start of something more extensive. We'd better get back to Burr. Professor Lyle removed a folded piece of white cloth from his waistcoat. He shook out the material, revealing it to be a large sheet of fine silk. Alexia was beginning to find the number of things he could stash in his waistcoat quite impressive. The local hives will have to be interviewed. The queens are not going to be happy. Apart from everything else, this incident is awfully embarrassing for them. Especially if they find out about the substandard shirt selection. The two gentlemen wrapped the vampire's body in the silk sheet. Professor Lyle hoisted it easily over one shoulder. Even in their human form, werewolves were considerably stronger than daylight folk. Lord Macon rested his gaze on Alexia. She was sitting primly on the Chesterfield. One gloved hand rested on the ebony handle of a ridiculous-looking parasol. Her brown eyes were narrowed in consideration. He would give a hundred pounds to know what she was thinking just then. He was also certain she would tell him exactly what it was if he asked, but he refused to give her the satisfaction. We'll try to keep your name out of it, Miss Tedabati. My report will say it was simply a girl who got lucky and managed to escape an unwarranted attack. No need for anyone to know a preternatural was involved. Why do you bird types always do that? Do what, Miss Terabati? Dismiss me as though I were a child. Do you realize I could be useful to you? Hmm. You mean you could go around legally getting into trouble instead of just bothering us all the time? Burr employs women, and I hear you even have a preternatural on the payroll up north. For ghost control and exorcism purposes. From whom exactly did you hear that? Miss Terabotti raised her eyebrows, as if she would ever betray the source of information told to her in confidence. Very well. Never you mind that question. I shall not. Professor Lyle, still holding the body slung over one shoulder, took pity on her. We do have both at Burr. Lord Macon elbowed him in the side, but he stepped out of range with a casual grace that bespoke much practice. But what we do not have is any female preternaturals, and certainly not any gentlewomen. All women employed by Burr are good working class stock. You are simply still bitter about the hedgehogs. Isn't Burr supposed to be covert? I could be covert. <laughs> 
You are about as covert as a sledgehammer. Really, sir? Manners? Oh. <clears throat> no offense meant, Miss Telebotty. Alexia, hurt, nodded, not looking up. She plucked at one of the pansies on her parasol. It's simply, gentlemen, I would so like something useful to do. Lord McCann waited until he and Professor Lyle were out in the hallway to ask the question that really bothered him. For goodness sake, Randolph, why doesn't she just get married? She's a bit, um, old, sir? Older, Ash. She cannot possibly have more than a quarter century or so. And she's very, um, assertive. Ah, simply got a jot more backbone than most females this century. There must be plenty of discerning gentlemen who cop her value. Professor Lyle had a well-developed sense of self-preservation and the distinct feeling that if he said anything desultory about the young lady's appearance, he might actually get his head bitten off. He, and the rest of polite society, might believe Miss Tarabotti's skin a little too dark and her nose a little too prominent, but he did not think Lord Macon felt the same. Perhaps it's the Italian last name, sir, that keeps her unwed. Mm, probably so. The two werewolves exited the Duke's townhouse into the black London night, one bearing the body of a dead vampire, the other a puzzled expression. Gail Carragher here. Thank you for your time, ladies and gentlemen. I do hope you enjoyed this audio-abridged version of the first chapter of Solus. Solus goes on sale in written form October 1st, 2009, available online and through fine bookstores everywhere. Publication rights are held by Orbit US, part of the Heshek Group. The narrator was played by Angela Vernon, Alexia Terribody by Miss Calendar of the Brass Needles podcast, Lord Connell Macon by George Clensus, Professor Lyle by Dan Sawyer, and The Unexpected Vampire by Chris Lester of the Metamore City podcast. I'd like to thank them all very much for their help with this project. This audio drama is copyright 2009 by Gail Carragher, produced by Artistic Whispers Productions. Please respect intellectual property by asking first if you would like to share this excerpt and crediting the writer, Gail Carragher, and the producer, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the rights holder, Orbit US. Please do not change it or sell it to suit your own whimsy. Contact me at your discretion at my website, www.gailcarragher.com, for permission to redistribute or any other news about Solus and the world of the Parasol Protectorate.